I give a fair number of talks each year, but um, this audience, I feel like I have more to learn from you than I have to tell you. And um, it's, um, it, it's uh, unusual, it, you know, I feel like I should be sitting there and you should be up here. Um, I feel that very deeply. Um, and um, I just wanted to mention that after the meeting, my husband and I are going to be staying for two more weeks, but we have no plans. What we're interested in is to go to schools and communities and just meet people. So um, I'd like to talk to people about possibilities afterwards. Um, okay. Um, I'd love to see more music, dance, and physical activity in Montessori. I've been on that soapbox for a while. And in particular, I think that El Sistema is something that is um, very congruent with Montessori philosophy and practices. And so I'd like to see if there's some way to maybe have a marriage between El Sistema music and Montessori education. El Sistema was started by an economist named Jose Antonio Abreu, who envisioned classical music as a way to transform children's lives. So El Sistema is not, the goal is not to make great musicians, the goal is to create community and raise um, children up. Um, and um, uh, I wanted to introduce you to uh, El Sistema and some of the principles that I think are so congruent between El Sistema and Montessori education. And one of them, for example, is never embarrass the child. So Abri, you used to say, going wrong is just something you do on the way to going right. It's just, you're just becoming a master at this. Um, and the importance of peer teaching. So another thing Abreu used to say is the child who knows three notes is the teacher to the child who knows two notes. And the importance of building community. So the primary skill you learn in El Sistema is not your instrument. The primary skill is working together. It's using the orchestra as a metaphor for how we work together as a society to become fantastic at working together. Um, and I wanted to mention um, that I'm going to give the organi organizers a copy of the slides um, so you don't have to worry about writing down everything I say and also all the URLs for the videos that I'm showing are going to be on the slides so that you can access them yourselves afterwards. You're welcome. Okay. So, so first, a little introduction to El Sistema. Nosotros vamos a pensar que vivimos en un barrio, en un barrio humilde que hay inseguridad. Nosotros vamos a pensar no han dado educación. Hay muchas personas que dicen él vive en un barrio y no le han dado educación. Era el primer día de la orquesta de cámara, entonces yo venía temprano y me dijeron, mmm, me dieron un disparo en la pierna y no podía ir. Y entonces yo llorando porque no me dolía, me dolía la pierna, pero más me dolía que no iba a estar aquí el día ese en la orquesta de cámara. Y se le olvida cuando uno llega aquí, se le olvida todo, todo, todo. El profesor nos dice, toquen pero con su corazón. No con, no con la mente, con el corazón.
Venezuela. Nosotros estamos en este momento trabajando para un universo de beneficiarios que se calcula en 265.000. Pero esto es apenas el comienzo. Nosotros estamos aprendiendo a tocar trompeta como para sacar nuestra familia adelante. Estamos para adelante como el elefante. Last year at the proms, here in the Royal Albert Hall, something amazing happened. A huge orchestra of kids from the shanty towns of Venezuela came to play Shostakovich's 10th symphony. One critic called it the performance of the season so far. It was an astonishing proms debut for one of the most remarkable orchestras in the world. The second half of the concert went off like a rocket. The promers had never seen anything like it. Abrea, but he believes in the orchestra as a unique instrument for socializing children, for giving them discipline, for giving them passion. For kids that maybe haven't succeeded in anything else, maybe don't speak very well, don't do math, you see these kids getting better at everything because it gives them, it gives them that kind of investment in, in their own identity. As I can do this. So um, I tried to think about um, what kind of um, hesitations people might have. And I thought, well, one of them is we want to be inclusive. We want to include everything. And how can you include deaf children, for example, in a music program? So this addresses that. Y fue bastante arduo, interesante, tanto contradictorio entre, entre lo cotidiano, lo normal, o la norma, y el querer brindarle la oportunidad De, de disfrutar del hecho musical a unas personas pues estaban sordas. is the only crop in Catayota, and the harvest lasts 12 months a year. It is Catayota's curse, its livelihood, and the only reason people live here. It provides hundreds of jobs to peasant farmers who are kicked off their plots by large landowners. They are the trash pickers. It is their profession. They sift through the stench 24 hours a day, scrounging for anything they can sell. Ten cents for a pound of plastic, five cents for a pound of cardboard. You'll be amazed at what else people are doing here with this trash. Just look and listen. 
This is the recycled orchestra of Katyuda. The violins are fashioned from oven trays. The cellos from oil barrels. Even the strings are recycled. The saxophones and trumpets are made from old drain pipes. The keys warns coins and bottle caps. The strumskin used to be an x-ray plate. The guitar from dessert tins. The idea came from environmental technician Fabio Chavez. When he came to Catiura and saw the kids working and playing on this miserable hill, he came up with the idea of starting a music school to lift the kids' lives out of the trash. From the start, Fabio realized that even if he could raise the money, new instruments were out of the question. A factory-made violin would cost more than a house here and would almost certainly get stolen. But these fiddles aren't worth a dime. They are the handiwork of trash worker and carpenter Don Cola Gomez. Three days a week, he goes to the dump to find the raw materials. Then in his tiny workshop at the edge of the dump, he goes to work. Fabio first asked him to make a violin, but this Stradivarius of South America had never seen one or heard one. Do you realize how unusual it is? Yes, that's the way it is. When you need something, you need to do whatever it takes to survive. Um, um. So these are some of the videos where you can see what I've shown and more. Um, and for the landfill here. Um, also, there are LC Stemma groups in Africa. There's one in Kenya. And again, the uh, uh, motivation is to create positive social change through the music. The goal is to change the lives of disadvantaged kids. They talk about them as being taught in school through rote memorization and not getting opportunities to be creative. And Elsie Stemma giving them the opportunities to exercise leadership and teamwork and, and, and develop self-respect and self-confidence. Um, uh, they're also um, trying to reach other places in Kenya and even in Uganda, Rwanda, and Tanzania through this initiative. Um, and here you can find out more online. Um, and this is a South African LC Stemma group. Um, there are a number of music groups in uh, South Africa, but this is the one most aligned with LC Stemma. Um, uh, and again, here you can find things online. And this other group um, uh, would like to be like LC Stemma, although they're not quite as much like it as the first group, but they deal, deal with choral music. I'm going to go on because it's so short. I, there's so much I want to say in so little time. Um, the other thing I wanted to uh, introduce people to, which I don't really have to after yesterday, is Youth Circus. Um, uh, I got introduced to it because this woman here, Jackie Davis, had, was a high school dropout. At 14, she wanted to become a mime, so she dropped out of school and moved to France where Marcel Marceau is to learn to become a mime. And then she discovered circus. And then she started uh, teaching circus and making a circus group. And um, she wanted to do a PhD with me to get scientific evidence of the benefit of circus for kids because she had seen so much benefit with her own eyes. 
And the man who taught circus yesterday knew, knows Jackie. It's a small world. Um, uh, so I figured if I'm going to advise this woman, I need to learn something about cir youth circus. And I didn't know anything about it. All I knew is Barnum and Bailey, you go and watch. And so they have an annual conference for the American Youth Circus Organization that brings together 300, 400 kids from all over the US who do circus. So I went to learn what circus is. And one of the people I met here is this um, uh, very handsome young man. You'd never guess that he was born in prison. His father was dead before he was born and his mother a couple of years later. At 15, he was the oldest male in his family still alive and not in jail. He joined Circus Harmony, a youth circus group there, actually founded by a, a well-known educator, Nate Hentoff. His daughter is Jessica Hentoff, who founded this. He joined it at age 12, and it transformed his life. When I met him, he was just headed to his freshman year at a prestigious circus university in Montreal run by Cirque du Soleil. Um, uh, Amazing Grace is another youth circus group. It's in New York. And they talk about how circus stands for confidence, imagination, respect, cooperation, understanding, and success. Our mission is to offer youth the opportunity to develop positive relationships using circus arts as the common bridge of communication and cooperation among diverse communities. To give teens the opportunity to build their self-esteem, learn how to cooperate, support and challenge each other to excel, feel empowered to take control and decide what they want to do and how to do it, making their own creations, promoting the use of their imaginations. All, I think, quite congruent with Montessori. Um, and it doesn't matter um, what, what your age is, your background, your body type, or anything. Everybody's accepted, and everybody helps one another. They're all united by a common interest in circus activities, and Jackie likes to emphasize that as opposed to sports where you're competing against each other. In circus, you're all working together and supporting each other. If you do well, our presentation does well, so I want you to do as well as you can do and you want me to do as well as I can do. And um, uh, they all are committed to helping each other and supporting each other. So if I'm spotting you high up on some apparatus, I am not gonna let you fall. If we're doing the human pyramid that you saw us try to start yesterday, I'm not gonna let you down. Um, and I just wanted to show you a little bit about you, circus. Don't you wanna take me to your neighborhood? No, not my neighborhood. Bad neighborhood, gun shooting, Terrible behavior. I am adopted, and it's just harder to find who I am. Can you hear? Youth circus is one of the best kept secrets. There are, however, about 140 different youth circus organizations around the country, and it takes many different forms. Circus offers physical fitness. It offers something for everyone. You can start with plate spinning and something to open the door, pique your interest and get you maybe motivated to learn how to juggle. Okay, now that I can juggle, maybe I want to learn how to unicycle. The doors keep opening. There's acrobatics, there's balancing, there's tight. They realize that this is something that they can do. It's a real breakthrough experience for the kids, and it makes accepting challenges in school and in other areas of their life much easier. It meets them in a way that allows them to just move ahead a little at a time. 
And the little at a time that they move ahead, they very slowly develop a belief in themselves. I like juggling the best. It took me a while. You start with one, and then two, and then three. Some people can juggle five. So I'm trying to work up to a lot. Kids are finding their place, finding something that they can do and be good at. And you've got kids working as a team to produce something that's bigger than they are. That their effort goes into something, and it adds up with the effort from everybody else, and nobody loses. It's one huge success. And if somebody drops a club, they try again, and then they hit the trick. And the kids are like, yeah, we did it. We did it. All of the circus programs that I've experienced so far build self-esteem and self-worth, and I just see so much confidence in, in my girls now. It really teaches you to work with each other, not just an individual, but that they must count on each other, trust each other, be aware of each other, listen to each other, and focus. There's something truly magical about being in the circus. the kids what they wanted to be in the future. The most common responses were what they saw around them. So water truck driver, sewage truck driver, most of the girls said a cashier. I saw all the lack of possibilities for youth. So I moved here October 31st, 2005 with my suitcases and my juggling pin. We did for a month and a half going out on the land hunting, fishing and at the same time presenting shows in Iglulik and giving workshops. And since then, every year, I came back alone or with other artists sharing, in fact, who we are through a universal language that is circus arts. I never thought in four years we would go to Timbuktu or Greece and come back, you know. I thought that would take a long time, and we did. Eric Circus definitely having an impact. That's really special, and it's a way for this group of youth to carry their message throughout the world. Like this, we are Inuit, and we're proud of who we are. I didn't think about clowning, but the attitude. That can make people Clowning, laugh. That's what he said. It really changed my life. So, what is Art Cirque? Circus, in fact, is just a pretext. A pretext to create a circle of trust and a space where people can communicate with each other. An area where you can work on yourself, trust the other, and dream. I just wanted to show you a little bit, uh, this is very, I'll do this very briefly, about uh, uh, the youth circuses all over the world, but um, it's quite moving when you see it in a place like Afghanistan. And I connected the youth circus group here with the Montessori orphanage and school in Kabul, the House of Flowers.
like to introduce you to a man named Craig Quatt, who um, uh, is committed to making juggling accessible to everybody, whether you have cerebral palsy, whether you're in a wheelchair, whether you have dementia, whether you have autism, he wants it to be accessible to everybody. And so one of the first things he did to try to make this accessible is to move it from the vertical plane where gravity gives you only a tiny moment to do things to the horizontal plane where you learn the juggling movements but you learn them in the horizontal plane where you can take as long as you want. So I want to show you a little bit about this. Is Sophia juggling? Yeah. Is there any is there any question or doubt of whether or not she's juggling? No. Right? She's absolutely juggling. And the student that does not have the ability to catch and throw now, because the experience was the same, that feel good. Everybody tells me when they do that, they're like, oh that feels good. But that's what juggling feels like. I'm like, yeah, that's what juggling feels like. Do you get it now? And they're like, oh. So actually, the stepping stone too, that's because juggling is so like definitive. You're either juggling or you're not. The balls are in the air. I didn't or not. realize that when, like I, when I downloaded it. Like, I let just me noticed. Test it out a little bit first and take it for a spin, see how it feels. So you have to feel it or not feel it. So that's an always awkward period for anyone, even like really well coordinated people. But something I was talking about the, the emotional side of it is what you'll find is they understand the pattern, you rock it down with two, and then you get this. Can you hold this now? You get this the first time. <laughs> and you're like, dude, why are you rushing? Like, what is the deal? Where's the fire? And you're like, check it out. Just do one ball. Just do one ball. Put it down. Stop. And you have to like, tell them to stop because they're already moving to go to the next one. It's like, stop. Don't move. Wait. It's still there. It's not going anywhere. You already dropped it. You can't drop it twice, right? And that's sort of like to see the child like, struggle with that idea. Like, oh, dude. This is up to me, but I have control of this. No one's forcing me to move faster. I don't have pressure, right? It's not someone else determining what I have to do. It's me. And then you say, now do the next one. Stop. Pick it up. Go. Go again. And you slowly build it up. And like once that clicks in their head, it's like instant. Oh, it's up to me. It's not about how fast I go. It's about the motion. It's about what I'm comfortable with. You build up your own skill. When they try to do that fastness, that's when the favor and the dominant hand thing comes in. That's when they start doing this. When they go too fast for them to be able to process is when they swap. Right? And this, 9.8 meters per second per second, is too fast for a lot of people starting out. So you start here. Again, um, I want to show you right? so and much this, that meters I per think second. I'm going to go on to the next video. This is the main thing he did for the horizontal. He doesn't sell this. He's, he Meet to raise money. Board. He sells the, the instructions for how you can make it yourself. Inclusive juggling activity. The juggle board takes the traditional challenges of juggling and adapts them into a fully accessible environment. Instead of having to quickly throw and catch, it uses tracks to hold balls in place so you can roll them back and forth. This makes the experience more easy and more fun. The Juggle Board promotes healthy physical activity and social engagement. It helps improve brain function, increases coordination, and it is a great source of active relaxation. You start simple. Practice and learn. 
explore endless possibilities, and advance your skills. The Juggle Board comes with a friendly book of methodology that provides clear illustrated instructions. The master compositions are intuitive and do not require any spoken instruction. In other words, this is a tool that can go anywhere and work with anyone. The distinction between academic and enrichment activities is arbitrary. Uh, critical executive function skills like reasoning, problem solving, self-control, working memory, cognitive flexibility can all be taught through things like wilderness survival, theater, martial arts, dance, sports, carpentry, music making, auto mechanics, circus, and play. I love that practical life includes these things, but I would love to see practical life also include these things. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen uh, Gevertelli's um, Tinkering School TED Talk, but the kids come there to learn to um, tinker, to learn to use tools, to learn to create, to learn that the um, uh, machines in their home are not just black boxes, but how they work. Um, and they do things like this. Um, so I'd like to see all these kinds of things be included as part of practical life, um, if possible. Um, and then next topic is, um, th there aren't a lot of studies, as you know, uh, empirical studies of Montessori, a Angeline Lillard being a marked uh, exception to that. But there are studies of things that are characteristics of Montessori education. For example, there's lots of evidence that children teaching children works far better than us adults teaching children, peer-to-peer -peer teaching. Um, and there's this recent study on um, the importance of curiosity. What this woman found is that poor kids who can, curiosity can be maintained do absolutely as well as the more advantaged kids. So here's the graph. For the kids, the low SES kids, if their curiosity is high, if they're over here on the curve, the achievement gap between the rich and the poor disappears. So if you can encourage kids' curiosity, I know that's revolutionary for Montessori, you don't do anything to encourage curiosity, but if you can encourage curiosity, um, it has dramatic effects. When youth have a say, um, they have more ownership and commitment to the activity, and you get all kinds of great benefits. And these are people who aren't looking at choice and empowerment the way Montessori is, but they're looking at inserting just a tiny bit, like being able to say the order in which you do things, right? Just that little bit of choice and empowerment gives, uh, improves reading, improves the outcome of the activity, improves all kinds of things. Um, and if you go to a public school, you know, kindergarten teachers and first grade teachers love to decorate their walls with every, using every inch of space for these beautiful decorations. Well, Anna Fisher and her colleagues showed that that distracts young children who don't have such good selective attention. So they actually do better in school if you have classrooms that look more like Montessori. They can be beautiful, but with not all this distraction on the walls. Um, Hands-on learning. We evolved to be able to learn 
to help us do what we need to do. If information is irrelevant for action, we don't pay attention in the same way. You know, like the passenger and the driver in the car. The driver learns the route because he needs to use it. The passenger is sitting there like you guys right now. And too often, like kids in public school classrooms, listening. And the teacher is up here using the information, learning it very well. And you guys are, are the audience. You, people learn something when they need it for what they want to do. And this is a study that backed that up. And many of you are, know about Jim Heckman's work showing the return on investment in early childhood. Maybe some of you don't know things like this, that early childhood, good early childhood, will dramatically increase the percent of kids who graduate high school. And they've shown in Canada that if you can increase the percent of kids graduating high school by only 1%, the return on investment to Canada is a savings of $7.7 .7 billion. Okay, um, next topic. Um, uh, executive functions, which is my specialty, refers to all those things that um, you need to do when going on instinct or intuition or automatic wouldn't work. It's when you have to pay attention and concentrate. And there are three core executive functions. One of them is inhibitory control. That is resisting a strong inclination to do one thing and instead do what's most appropriate or needed. At the level of attention, that's selective or focused attention. So here's a Montessori child doing his math, even though there's lots of distractions going on in the classroom. Children are moving about, putting their mats down, doing their things, he's able to focus. That's an example of focused attention. But because we're able to selectively attend, we can miss important things because we were selectively attending for other things. So in this study, people were asked to count the number of photos in a newspaper. Some people finished in a few seconds, others took minutes. It's not that some people were faster counters. The secret lay on page two, where on huge block letters, it said, stop counting. There are 43 photos in the paper. But some people were so good at selectively attending for photos, they didn't see this, so they kept counting. Um, we need to balance selective attention with cognitive flexibility. A few ways children can practice and thus improve their focused attention or selective attention are traditional activities that many of us did growing up, like walking on a log or the races with an egg or water and a spoon. Or, you know, things you do in Montessori classrooms. Um, uh, uh, Tish Jennings in her Montessori uh, school used to have the children all have a bell, you know, the traditional bell. Even the teacher had it. The most dysregulated child in the classroom can lead the line as you're walking on the line. The goal of the game is not to make a sound with your bell. It's a walking meditation exercise, but you don't tell the kids we're going to do walking meditation. You say we're going to play a game. And you get immediate feedback when your mind wanders, right? The bell makes noise. These are great activities for not only developing fine motor skills, but also for selective attention. This takes serious concentration for the young child. Okay, at the level of behavior, um, inhibitory control involves self-control. Um, and for little kids, so much of their life revolves around demands on self-control. 
You know, don't do this, don't do that, wait your turn, don't hit another child, don't pee in your pants, don't eat your dessert first, you know, all, the, all these things. But for all of us, even as adults, there are many demands on self-control. You know, somebody hurts your feelings and your first reaction might be to hurt them back. But you don't do that because you don't want to get in the cycle of tit for tat. Or not blurting out the first thing that comes to mind. You know, the example I give is maybe there's a dear friend who you haven't seen for years, and you're so looking forward to seeing this person who you love so much. But your first reaction when you see her is, my God, how much weight you gained. But you don't say that. You use self-control. You don't um, press send on an angry email message. You use self-control. Um, you resist jumping to a conclusion about what something must have meant, because we can often be wrong about the intent behind something. And of course, working with difficult children, right, your first reaction might be to want to take that child and make that child behave properly, but you know that's not going to work, so you use self-control. And Julia talked about how in working with children in the Tory Strait, and you needed to be firm, you know, it's so hard because your, your heart goes out to them and you know, you know you'd like not to be so firm because you see them struggling with it, but then you know for their good you need to be, so you need to use your self-control. Discipline and perseverance, resisting the temptations, all the temptations to quit and not finish what you started require discipline and, and, and uh, self-control. So you might want to stop because it's so easy, you're bored, or it's so hard, you're frustrated. Certainly there are more fun things you'd like to do. It requires self-control to persevere and delay gratification. But we need to be willing and able to stop persevering at something when the evidence shows it's not working, right? You need to balance discipline and perseverance with cognitive flexibility. Young children are often capable of responding correctly. If some way can be found to cause them to wait, to delay responding right away. But of course, if you're dealing with a three-year-old or a four-year-old, wait does not compute. It's totally meaningless. So we tried to find ways to get them to wait. And one way we came up with was to sing a little ditty to them after showing the card they're supposed to respond to before they can respond. I'm going to show you what it looks like. Um, it works really well with the children, but you can imagine that the students working for me don't really like this condition. They're all very embarrassed to be doing the singing. So not to embarrass them, you will embarrass me, you'll see me doing it. Um, normally a child only gets one condition or another, but for the film crew we had the child do, the same child do both conditions. So the rules are, when you see a white card with a sun, you're supposed to say night. And when you see a black card with a moon and stars, you're supposed to say day. So it's a kind of stroop task for children. And we practice with them in the beginning, so they all understand what they're supposed to do, and they usually start out right, but then they often can't maintain it. So you see, um, uh, we noticed that the children who could maintain going slowly were the ones who continued to get it right. So, here, here's percent correct on um, uh, the trials where these children took a long time to respond. You can see they're very aberrant. They're going much more slowly, but they're also getting it correct. And I, we noticed that was also true between children. So we came up with this ditty condition. Now, you might think that jabbering at the children when they're supposed to be computing the answer would interfere 
with their doing it. But they're a chance without our singing, and they're almost 90% correct when we do that singing. When you see this white card with a sun, Thank you. you're supposed to say night. Can you say night? Good. And when you see this black card with a moon, you're supposed to say day. Yes. So what do you say when you see this? Night. Yes. And what do you say when you see this? Morning. one second I just want to mention he knows the rules every time he says it wrong he corrects himself so it's not a memory problem it's not an understanding problem but he's so impulsive that occasionally he answers before I have even shown him the card well, yes can we try it once more this time I'm gonna sing a little ditty after I show you the card and I don't want you to answer till after I'm finished singing okay, okay. can we try that okay so, think about the answer, don't tell me. Now can you tell me? What do you say? Mm -hmm. Morning. Think about the answer, don't tell me. Now what do you say? Mm -hmm. Night. Think about the answer, don't tell me. Now. Mm -hmm. Night. Now, we, I had thought about this in terms of giving him time to compute the answer. But you're good observers. You must have noticed that when I'm singing that stupid ditty, he's not computing anything. He's giving his full attention to me. So what's happening is simply that I'm allowing time between when he sees the stimulus and when he can respond. Because the automatic, impulsive response raises to response threshold. So if he can respond immediately, he's going to say the impulsive response. But if you just let time go by, that will fade. And the response that takes longer to compute will come to response threshold. Um, Tools of the Mind uses this principle to help with mirror reversal writing. So many teachers in public schools pull their hair out about mirror reversal writing. In Tools of the Mind, they don't say anything about it being bad. They just show the children what they should do. They give them a card that shows how it should look in front of them. And they say, each time today when you're, when you're writing your numbers, every time you're supposed to write a six, put down your pencil and pick up a red pencil. And what happens is after that single day, mirror reversal writing is gone. It's not that the red pencil was any magic. What it was, was it gave them time between when they're intending to write the six and they write the six. That's all it did. It allowed time for the automatic thing to subside and the correct response to be executed. And if you keep executing it and executing it, then the automatic response is no longer so automatic. Inhibitory control is the executive function most predictive of long-term outcomes. Children with better inhibitory control, that is kids who were more persistent, less impulsive, had better attention regulation as little kids, as adults 30 years later have better health, higher incomes and better jobs, fewer run-ins with the law, and they report that they're happier. 
than their peers who, as young children, had worse inhibitory control. That's true controlling for almost every variable under the sun. It's based on a study of 1,000 children born in the same city in the same year, followed for 32 years with a 96% retention rate. I wish I did the study. Um, uh, the second core executive function is working memory. That's holding information in mind and working with it. That's critical for anything that unfolds over time because that always requires holding in mind what came earlier and relating that to what's happening now. So it's obvious for oral language, right? Because you're not hearing what I said earlier. You have to hold in mind what I said earlier and relate that to what I'm saying now. But it's also true for reading because you don't see all the words at the same time. Even at the level of a sentence, you have to hold in mind what you read earlier and relate that to what you're reading now. It's critical for all kinds of things. Um, executive functions need to be continually challenged for them to improve, not just used, but challenged. And I predict that a great way to improve children's focused attention and working memory is simply to tell them stories. Storytelling should be a terrific way to challenge and improve working memory, both the telling of stories and the listening to stories, because it challenges them so much. And I'm a huge fan of storytelling. I love storytelling. Storytelling requires and invites your rapt attention for extended periods of time, sustained focused attention, and working memory to hold in mind everything that's happened so far, all the different characters' identities, the story details, and relating that to the new information you're learning about the story without visual aids that help you without pictures on the page or puppets acting it out. You have to hold it all in mind. A researcher randomly assigned children in kindergarten and grade one, either to storytelling, by which I mean that only the teacher could see the pages in the book, or story reading, where after each page, she would turn the book so the children could see the pages in the book, the pictures in the book. So it's just a matter of whether only you see the book or you turn it each time so that the children can see the pictures. And what they found is vocabulary and recall improve more in children assigned to storytelling than children assigned to story reading. Vocabulary assessed at age three strongly predicts reading comprehension when you're nine to 10 years of age. The more interaction, the more conversation between the storyteller or the story reader and the children, the more actively engaged the children are the more their vocabulary improves. So maybe one reason why they, why they found the greater benefit from the storytelling is that if you're doing story reading, you have to keep breaking eye contact with the child because you have to go down to read the pages in the book. But if I'm telling you a story, I can maintain my contact with you the whole time. I don't have to break eye contact. And that invites you into the conversation with me. That it makes it more of a dyadic um, encounter instead of me to you. We don't know why they found what they found, but that's one possibility. There's a landmark study that came out earlier th this year that showed that the conversation between a child and adults aids brain development over and above your economic circumstances, excuse me, or the number of words <coughs> spoken or heard. The critical variable is the number of conversational turns taken. It's talking with a child, 
not talking to or at the child. <coughs> Children who experienced more conversational turns ex <coughs> exhibited greater activation and broke his area. And that explained 50% of the relation between their language exposure and their later verbal abilities. That builds on a lot of earlier work showing that the conversation that takes place in the context of reading seems to have more benefit than the reading itself. While story reading is wonderful, I don't say I don't encourage anybody not to do it, I predict that storytelling should improve attention and working memory more because it taxes them more. And the more you challenge them, the more they improve. And for that reason, I'm a huge fan of poetry slam and spoken word, same kind of thing. The third core executive function is cognitive flexibility. Being able to see an issue from different perspectives, think about the same thing in a whole new way, to seamlessly adjust to change or the unexpected. Einstein said, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. So here's an example of cognitive flexibility. So in what way, everybody, anybody, is a carrot like a cucumber? Somebody call out an answer. Thank you, okay. In what way is a carrot like an orange? Yes. In what way is a carrot like a potato? Yes. In what way is a carrot like an apple? Excellent. So this is simply an exercise in thinking about a carrot in different ways, focusing on its color or where it grows, etc. Cognitive flexibility also involves the flexibility to take advantage of a sudden opportunity, serendipity, or to get to your goal despite unexpected problems and obstacles, or to admit you were wrong when you get new information. If there's a problem we haven't been able to solve, can you think outside the box to conceive of the problem, frame the problem in a whole new way, come up with a completely different way of attacking it? How can we stop ourselves from getting really upset when a child misbehaves? We usually get upset about we think, what we think is the intention behind the action. We can use cognitive flexibility to reframe. A child might be acting in the most awful way because he's been terribly hurt and he's afraid of being hurt again. So he'll push you away before you have the chance to push him away or he'll test you to see if you're really somebody he can feel safe with. If we see the misbehavior is coming from hurt, we can react completely differently. An example of poor cognitive flexibility is given by Alexander Graham Bell. He said, when one door closes, another door opens. But we often look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the ones which open for us. Uh, one of the tests that are used to study cognitive flexibility and creativity is called alternative uses. Can you creatively see the same thing from different perspectives? Can you think of unusual uses for a common object like a table? So everybody, we could obviously write on a table or eat on a table, that's boring. What crazy outside the box things could you ever possibly do with a table? Yes, somebody else. What? Sleep on it. 
Yes. So you can hide under it. You can turn it on its side to protect you from things people throw at you. You can turn it upside down to play horseshoes. Use it as a percussion instrument or cut it up for firewood. Just a few different things. More disadvantaged children may have better cognitive flexibility and creativity than more advantaged children. So let me, this is this graduate student at Boston College who is studying this. And she's using two different tasks, two different paradigms. So in one case, this bear puppet over here, he's very nice and they get to meet him, really wants this thing up here on the shelf, but he can't reach it. What can we do to help bear be able to reach his goal? So you have a box containing things. And what the children first think of is, of course, to put the two blocks on top of each other. But that's not high enough. It won't get you there. So what they have to do is change how they think about the box. Instead of only thinking about it as a container, they need to think about it as a base. OK, another example is this bear again would like this thing inside the cylinder, but he can't reach it. What can we do to, to help him? What can he do so that he can reach this thing inside the cylinder? And before this problem is presented, they have the children do some writing with um, this pencil on the uh, notebook because they want to encourage you to think about the pencil as a writing implement. Because in order to solve this, you have to change that and think about the pencil as a tool, as a poke, to be able to go in the cylinder. And what she's finding is that the disadvantaged kids, the poor kids in the inner city of Boston, solve these problems fa far faster than their rich relatives in the suburbs of Boston. And um, so I said to her, well, I'm going to this conference where there are lots of people working with disadvantaged kids. Would you like anybody to see what happens with their kids? And many of these people here are doing Montessori, which encourages children to come up with creative solutions. I bet Montessori kids would be able to solve this faster than children in traditional education. So if anybody would like to do this, she's happy to send the materials so that you can see what you get. For practicing all of the executive functions, one fantastic way to do that is through social dramatic play, to pretend that you're doctors and patients or, or uh, bank robbers and police or whatever, because that requires holding in mind what role you picked and what role your friends picked, right? Because if you're planning the robbery, you don't want to accidentally tell the cop. I mean, that would be disastrous. You have to remember who's who. And you have to inhibit acting out of character. If you're doing a family scenario and you pick the baby role, you can't all of a sudden get up and drive this fancy car, right? It's very tempting, but babies can't do that yet. You have to stay in character. And your friends may take that scenario in ways you never imagined. So on the fly, in real time, you have to flexibly adjust. You're training all three executive functions. The, these are the three core executive functions, and from those higher order executive functions are built, which are problem solving, reasoning, and planning. And problem solving and reasoning are what fluid intelligence is. There are three basic ways to help improve the functioning that requires executive functions. One way is to improve executive functions themselves. And the best way to do that is to train them, challenge them, and practice 
practice, practice. But another way to help you function in the world in situations that require executive functions is to circumvent the demand on the executive functions, like writing yourself notes so you don't have to hold everything in mind, or putting the cookies in an opaque cookie jar instead of a transparent one so you don't have to use such self-control not to keep taking the cookies out of the jar. Simple things that can help you function. The executive functions are extremely energy demanding, and there's no reason to keep taxing ourselves when we can make life easier for ourselves. And a third way to improve executive functions is to reduce the things that impair executive functions, that get in the way of us being able to show the executive functions we're capable of, such as not getting enough sleep, such as being sad or stressed. Um, we've been doing a review, we've been doing several reviews of all of the methods to try to improve executive functions that anybody's ever tried. Um, and what we found is that a relatively understudied approach, mindfulness practices involving movement. So these are things like Tai Chi, Taekwondo, some Chinese mind-body practices, and something that an Italian invented called quadrato motor training, have the best results of any method tried thus far to improve executive functions. Now often, initial findings look great, and then when you get more studies, they don't hold up, so it may not be that these are so great, but they look great so far. Of all the nine studies of these different methods so far, and there's like one or two of each kind of thing, 100% of these nine studies of dynamic mindfulness, mindfulness activities involving movement, have found at least suggestive evidence of executive function benefits. No other approach to improving executive functions can claim anything close to that. So we've looked at 12 different ways of trying to improve executive functions. Mindfulness practices involving movement. And I separated yoga out initially just because there were so many studies of yoga that it deserved its own group. And the, the findings from yoga are mixed. It may be because many studies didn't do real yoga, but did a kind of westernized version of yoga. I don't know. Um, I wanted to show you what quadrato looks like because it's something that you could try in your classrooms if you were interested. They can send you the materials. All you need is four little patches on the floor. It can be, you know, little cut-out circles. Um, and a tape. And the tape calls out numbers. The numbers say to go, like, from one to two or two to four, etc. That's all it is, and it's seven minutes. It's just seven minutes a day. Uno, due. Due, uno. Uno, quattro. Four studies now have shown that this improves performance on the alternative uses task. I don't know why, but um, it's intriguing. There's been a lot of interest in computerized cognitive training. Computerized working memory training improves exactly what you train on in the test but the results don't generalize, and they don't last very long. Con contrary to influential reviews of the benefits of aerobic exercise, the majority of aerobic exercise interventions have not produced improvements in either memory or executive functions. But people who are more physically active and who have better aerobic fitness have better executive functions.
Okay, so that's the seeming contradiction. People who are more physically active and physically fit have better executive functions, but aerobic interventions, even ones that last as long as a year, do little to improve executive functions. Many people who maintain better fitness do so by participating in physical activities that involve cognitive challenges and complex motor skills. Perhaps aerobic exercise interventions haven't seen more executive function benefits because they've had minimal cognitive or motor skill demands, like running on a treadmill or riding on a stationary bike. But results for aerobic interventions with more emphasis on motor skills or cognitive demands have found results that are almost as disappointing. So again, here's where you see the mindfulness activities that involve movement. Here's plain aerobic exercise or enriched aerobic exercise. Not very impressing. The worst results across all the different methods. Most studies have looked at decontextualized skills, abstracted from the sport that they're used in, such as practicing a basketball, to dribble a basketball in the gym, but you never play basketball. You're just doing these exercises. We're less motivated to master arbitrary skills abstracted from their practical real-world use. A recent study evaluated two different ways to teach tennis. One way is the traditional way that I learned to play tennis. So first you practice your forehand, ad infinitum, and then when you get relatively good at it, you practice your backhand, ad infinitum. You're practicing isolated skills. The other method they use was to teach children to play tennis by having them play a simplified, age-appropriate version of tennis from the beginning. So they learned to play tennis by playing tennis. And what they found is that method not only got them playing tennis better sooner, but it also improved their executive functions more. Here you see a benefit from both types of teaching, but on this measure, you only see a benefit from learning to play tennis by playing tennis. And this is a benefit to executive function, not to your tennis play. Many people who maintain better fitness do so by participating in activities that engage their minds, their hearts, and their souls. Many are passionate about the activities and deeply committed. They, the activities are an important part of their social lives and their lives in general, maybe an important source of pride and personal identity. I think that gets at the crux of it. Improving aerobic capacity per se, or improving particular cognitive skills isolated from their use in anything real, is less likely to improve executive functions than touching the hearts and minds of people, as a holistic, coherent activity can do. If executive functions are demanded only for decontextualized purposes, executive function improvements are small and narrow. Engaging in a real-world activity might be critical. And there have been several successes from using real-world activities. In one case, they use cooking. In another case, they use things like, besides cooking, ma managing a budget. One of them that I'm particularly a fan of is Experience Corps. Experience Corps is a US program where they take old retirees and have them go into elementary schools. And it was originally designed as a way to help the health of the retirees. But what they found is it not only helped the older adults, it helped the children as well. It's a gain-gain for everybody. And there's a study that it helps the executive functions of the adults doing it. Theater's another thing that they've shown good benefits for. And school programs like Montessori, Tools of the Mind, et cetera, have shown benefits. 
I propose that what's needed is to engage young people in activities they really care about, where improving executive functions is needed for what they want to do, where mentors and experiences inspire and instill self-confidence. We never evolve to learn for learning's sake. Few of the hundreds of attempts to improve executive functions have looked at people doing anything that they really care about. If you're passionate about an activity, you'll devote enormous time and effort to it. If that activity trains and challenges executive functions, then you're going to see executive function benefits because it's the time spent practicing, pushing yourself to improve, that drives the benefit. Training and challenging executive functions is needed for them to improve. Um, and if the goals of education include things like logical reasoning, critical thinking, creative problem solving, children need opportunities to practice those skills day in and day out. But that alone is probably not enough to achieve the best results. It's likely that indirectly supporting executive functions by lessening things that impair them and enhancing things that support them is also critical. Executive functions depend on a part of the brain called prefrontal cortex and the other parts of the brain it's connected with. Prefrontal cortex is the newest area of the brain over evolution. It takes the longest time to develop over the human lifespan, and it's the most vulnerable. If you're sad or stressed, lonely, or not physically fit, prefrontal cortex and executive functions take the first hit and the biggest hit. Conversely, we show better executive functions if we're happy, if we feel socially supported, and if we're healthy and physically fit. We have better executive functions when we're happier. When we're sad, we have worse working memory and selective attention. When we're happy, we have better working memory and selective attention. The most heavily researched predictor of creativity and social psychology is mood. And the most robust finding is that a happy mood leads to greater creativity, specifically in the sense of greater cognitive flexibility. It enables people to work more flexibly and to see potential relatedness among unusual and atypical members of categories. Joy is not the opposite of serious. The distinction between work and play disappears when you're doing something you thoroughly enjoy. Are these young people working or playing? How about these children, working or playing? Research shows we learn more and get more done when we're happy. Our brains work better when we're not in a stressed emotional state. And that's particularly true for prefrontal cortex and executive functions. Stress will impair executive function and cause anyone to look as if he or she has an executive function impairment like ADHD, when the person doesn't, the person is simply stressed. You may have noticed that when you're stressed, you can't think as clearly or exercise as good self-control. When I'm stressed, I reach for the chocolate. Here are some of the neurobiological reasons for why that's the case. Even mild stress dramatically increases the level of the neurotransmitter dopamine in prefrontal cortex. There are many regions of the brain that need dopamine in order for the neurons to speak to one another. But only in prefrontal cortex does mild stress dramatically increase the level of dopamine. So it floods prefrontal cortex with dopamine, the way flooding your car engine with gasoline would make your, your engine not work properly. 
now flooding prefrontal cortex with dopamine makes prefrontal cortex so it can't work properly. Also, there are more receptors for cortisol and prefrontal cortex than in any other region of the brain. So when your body releases cortisol, it's going to affect prefrontal cortex more than any other brain region. And a few weeks of stress in preparation for a major university exam disrupts the functional communication between prefrontal cortex and other regions of the brain. It comes back when the stress is over and after the exam, but during that period, your prefrontal cortex isn't able to communicate as well with the rest of the brain and executive functions suffer. If you're stressed, you can't do your best in school or at work. If you're stressed, you can't be the parent or teacher you want to be. If you're stressed, your children will pick up on it. It will make them stressed. And if they're stressed, their executive functions will suffer and therefore their school performance will. So relax. <laughs> You're not perfect, I'm sorry. You're gonna make mistakes. You don't need to be perfect though. Imperfect is not the same as worthless. It's okay to mess up, everybody messes up. Wholeness does not mean perfection. It means becoming more real by acknowledging the whole of who you are. It's not easy to accept self, life, and time as limited and yet still worthwhile and to be experienced fully. Shame is the fear that there's something about me that if other people knew it or saw it, it would make them not want to be with me. I'm not worthy. Yet for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. In Breen Brown's research, only one variable separated people who had a strong sense that they had love and belonging in their lives and the people who struggled for it. And that was the people who have a strong sense that they have love and belonging in their lives, believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's the only difference. What keeps us out of connection is the fear we aren't worthy of connection. Those folks who felt they were in loving, nurturing relationships had the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were. We believe that the unacceptable aspects of ourselves create our suffering, but it's actually our non-acceptance and disowning of those aspects that create all the unhappiness in our lives. You matter. Take time to address your needs. Self-care is not selfish. It's a necessary prerequisite for being able to be caring toward others. Carol Gilligan makes this point when she talks about women's development and that a huge um, epiphany in women's development is that we matter too, instead of we're only to be the caregivers for others. So stop trying. Let go of trying to be in control. Let go of insisting that things be a certain way. Let go of old regrets and grudges from the past. Insecurity is the result of trying to be secure. The desire for security and the feeling of insecurity are the same thing. If you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you'll be free. There's a parable um, uh, in India about hunters who had a great way to catch monkeys. And basically, it was because the monkeys wouldn't let go. 
So they put this food inside a coconut with very small hole, and if you don't let go, you can't get your hand out. So they want the food so much, they won't let go of it, and they get captured, is the parable. Um, um, this is about severe stress, adverse childhood experiences. It's very short. And Kaiser Permanente discovered an exposure that dramatically increased the risk for seven out of 10 of the leading causes of death in the United States. In high doses, it affects brain development, the immune system, hormonal systems, and even the way our DNA is read and transcribed. Folks who are exposed in very high doses have triple the lifetime risk of heart disease and lung cancer and a 20-year difference in life expectancy. And yet doctors today are not trained in routine screening or treatment. In the words of Dr. Robert Block, the former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, adverse childhood experiences are the single greatest unaddressed public health threat facing our nation today. Um, uh, this is some of the questions that were in that study. It's not that you have to have been exposed to sexual abuse or physical abuse for it to count as an early adverse experience. It could be things like, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you? Did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special? And what they found in their middle class sample was that over two thirds of the people had experienced at least one early adverse experience and over 20% had experienced at least three different kinds. It turns out that if you've only experienced one adverse childhood experience, then you're uh, outcomes seem to be no worse than people who had none. But it's a linear progression. The more adverse childhood experiences, the longer they last, the more severe, the worse the outcomes. So for example, here is just for one variable, obesity. You can see the linear progression with the number of different kinds of adverse experiences in a person's life, early adverse experiences. The mechanisms underlying how trauma leads to the body becoming programmed to be more prone disease and, and early death are many. One of them is sustained overproduction of cortisol. And it's the HPA axis that gives you cortisol. While cortisol normally functions to reduce inflammation, sustained overproduction of cortisol leads receptors for cortisol to become insensitive to cortisol. The analogy I give is if somebody keeps nagging you about the same thing all the time, you become deaf to the nagging. If you keep um, releasing cortisol all the time, the receptors for the cortisol turn off to cortisol. Enough already, I'm not dealing with you anymore. Um, when that happens, cortisol can't do its job. Immune activation, which cortisol would normally suppress, now continues unchecked. Instead of protecting the body, it starts to kill it, slowly but surely. Sustained high levels of cortisol gradually wear your body down. Another major stress system in the body is the sympathetic nervous system. And that releases epinephrine or adrenaline. Again, early life stress induces a sensitization of the sympathetic nervous system, so it keeps releasing adrenaline. 
And what happens is that sustained overproduction of adrenaline leads to insensitivity to adrenaline, just like sustained overproduction of cortisol leads to insensitivity to cortisol. And one result, for example, is adrenaline can no longer regulate surges in your blood pressure. Early stressful experiences also disrupt neural development, altering brain structure and function. So the amygdala is the area of the brain that is like a fire alarm. If there's any reason to think there's danger in the environment, if there's any reason to be afraid, the amygdala starts going off like a fire alarm. It, it is alerting you to, that there's danger here. So what they did in this fMRI study is they showed faces showing strong emotions. And no surprise, in all of the conditions, amygdala activation went up when you see a face that looks afraid or angry. No surprise. In this condition, you have to say which word, which adjective correctly labels what emotion the face is showing. Here you have to say which face is showing the same emotion. This is a control condition, just watch. And these are other control conditions. Which name is the correct gender for this face? So you're dealing with language here. Which face is the same gender as this face? So you're dealing with matching faces. Only in, this con in all conditions, when you see an angry or fearful face, amygdala activation goes up. Only in this condition, where you have to assign a verbal label to that emotion, and it's just a single word, does amygdala activation go down. Now, presumably in this condition, you also have to figure out what the emotion is, right? Because you have to say which face is showing the same emotion. It doesn't work. You need the explicitness of the linguistic label. So there's an inverse relationship between prefrontal cortex activation and amygdala activation. The amygdala is way up here, all activated, and prefrontal cortex comes in and tells the amygdala you can calm down. I have a handle on this. I can wrap my head around it. It's okay. You're not in danger, really. You're okay. However, people who are exposed to adverse events at home growing up show a strong positive relationship between prefrontal activation and the amygdala. So they're recruiting prefrontal cortex. It's increasing its activation, but the message isn't getting through to the amygdala. It's disrupting the functional communication between prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, so the amygdala activation stays high. Even though prefrontal cortex is doing its job, it's trying to say you can calm down, amygdala isn't hearing it. And so the result, um, so, so this is what I said, it's not calming down the amygdala, and it's just like what I said happens to you if you get stressed today. But now, as an adult, you're able to say it was just a, a, an incident. It's just a particular time in my life. And when that's over, your brain goes back to how it should be. But if you're exposed to this a lot as a child or extremely extreme circumstance, even occasionally as a child, it shapes how your brain now functions in communicating between one region of the brain and the other. So prefrontal cortex becomes unable to effectively communicate with and, or, and thus calm down the amygdala. So what the effect of this is that you can't calm down now. You're staying in that anxious state. You need to be constantly vigilant because there's danger here. And the prefrontal cortex isn't telling you it's okay. There really isn't danger here. So you're always on the alert for the danger. You get easily panicked and immobilized by things that provoke anxiety. Teachers, psychologists, and physicians should routinely consider the possibility that a child who's misbehaving 
anyone who's overeating or smoking or drinking too much or using illicit drugs might not have too weak inhibitory control, too weak willpower, but instead might be doing this in a response to severe stress or an attempt to escape the psychic pain from severe early stress or trauma. Hurt is at the center of all addictive behaviors. Turning to drugs or alcohol is often seen as the problem, but often it's an attempt to deal with or escape from the problem, an attempt to deaden, drown out, or escape emotional and social pain, despondency, feelings of hopelessness. Women who've been sexually abused often put on a lot of weight and may take less care of their appearance. In part, eating provides momentary pleasure and comfort, but importantly, obesity and a less attractive appearance provide a measure, often unconscious without the woman realizing it, of protection from male overtures or abuse in the future. A man isn't gonna bother me if I look less attractive to him. If a girl or woman is very overweight, you might take seriously the possibility, and it's only a possibility because of course there are many reasons why you might be overweight, but one possibility is that she might have been sexually abused. For someone who's been terribly hurt by another, it's extremely hard to let down your guard, to risk trusting again, to risk being hurt again. Remember what I told you about Breen Brown's work um, and that for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. It's not inevitable that if you were insecurely attached growing up, your children will be insecurely attached to you now. The major insight of Mary Maine is that it's not inevitable. Many parents who've experienced abusive or rejecting relationships growing up do in turn raise their children the way they were raised and their children are insecurely attached to them. But many other parents with equally unfortunate childhoods don't. Their children are securely attached. What's the difference? The difference is the ability of that latter group to discuss their childhood experiences with emotional openness and insight. They seem to have come to terms with what happened to them and gained an understanding of why their parents behaved as they did. Not that they think it was right, but that's something they can wrap their head around and therefore have closure enough to let it rest. The outcome of secure versus insecure attachment, of course it's better to be securely attached, but the outcome can be as good for those insecurely attached if they've organized their attachment experience into a coherent story. A life narrative that makes sense can be key to transformation and healing. We need to make sense of our lives. Constructing the story of our lives and of our past can help a coherent history to emerge. It can help provide closure. Experiences that are not fully processed create unresolved and leftover issues that can easily get triggered in the parent-child relationship or the teacher-child relationship. It's important to process those experiences because otherwise we find ourselves not acting like the parent or teacher we want to be, but instead we wonder why parenting sometimes brings out the worst in us. When we have an unresolved issue, we're not really listening to our children. We're reacting on the basis of experiences in our past. A recent study reports that unresolved trauma, trauma that you can't get past and you keep bringing up in your memory, bodes poorly for your ability to use executive functions 
and thus your ability to, to function well in life. They found that exposure to violence when unresolved still impaired cognition, executive functions, and memory even more than a decade after the main traumatic event had ended. We prolong and amplify the negative impact of horrible events if we keep going over them in our minds instead of being able to let them go and leave them in the past. Traumatized people keep replaying the same reel over and over again, stuck at that point in their past. There's something called the Zygarnik effect in cognitive psychology, which was discovered by a guy named Zygarnik, which is that um, if you're giving a lecture, for example, or you're creating a movie, don't tie up everything in neat little uh, package, but leave loose ends hanging, because the loose ends dangling will keep people thinking about your lecture, thinking about your film, and so you'll amplify the benefit of the lecture. Well, that's great if you're giving an academic a lecture, but it's terrible if you're trying to overcome something from your past. You don't want loose ends dangling. You want closure so that you can put it down and let it rest. We don't want painful thoughts or feelings to keep bothering us. We want them to go away. Indeed, we try to make believe they have gone away. But ironically, they only go away once they're acknowledged and addressed. It is repressing them that keeps them active and alive. The harder we work at suppressing thoughts or feelings, the greater the stress on the body. Holding back thoughts and feelings can place anyone at risk for a major disease. Those feelings need to be faced and addressed. Problems and issues from our past don't go away on their own. They have to be worked through or they remain, and the mind keeps working on them. There are two kinds of suffering. First is the suffering that causes more suffering that we repeat over and over. The second is the suffering that comes when we stop running. The second kind of suffering can lead to freedom. Confronting our deepest hurts, actively talking or writing about them, and acknowledging the emotions associated with them can have remarkable short and long-term mental and physical health benefits. So Jamie Pennybaker spent his career going to places of catastrophe in the world, like a tsunami or a, a huge fire or a flood, and um, uh, studying people there. And what he would do is he would ask people to keep a private journal of their emotions of the experience. You're not even talking to a sympathetic listener. You're just writing in this journal. And what he found is that the act of writing about it would help people heal. If people talk or write about their problems, their psychological and physical health improves. So he's working with adults and he's talking about the power of language, which I'm gonna talk about for a minute or two. But with children, it's play, it's symbolic expression, it's drawing, etc. Writing forces a degree of structure and organization of one's thoughts. When writing, the thinking process has to slow down. The act of repeatedly telling or writing about your experience results in an organization of the event and a summarizing of it. The description of it gradually becomes shorter and more coherent, something that you can wrap your head around and then let go of. Any event is less overwhelming and easier to think about once it's summarized. So remember I, I told you about this. And again, it's the use of language, the single word to label the emotion. Putting feelings into words produces therapeutic effects on the brain. When you put feelings into words, you increase activation of prefrontal cortex, and that reduces activation of the amygdala. Children need to feel connected to their heritage and proud of their cultural identity. 
Youth need to feel connected to who they are, and that's an especially compelling need of First Nations in North America, and probably anywhere. Um, uh, one of the chiefs has said, when we honor our customs, we have everything we need to heal ourselves within ourselves. So Michael Chandler has studied the hundreds of First Nations in British Columbia. And he found that most of the suicide rate is higher, much higher among First Nations than among the settlers from abroad. But in most First Nation communities, 85% of them, um, it's zero or close to zero. So in some of the other First Nations communities, it's enormous. Some of the communities show rates 800 times above the national average, while in others it's essentially unknown. What's the difference? Communities that have taken active steps to rediscover and preserve their cultural heritage are those in which youth suicide rates are markedly lower. Especially strong is having self-governance, uh, fighting with the government over land claims, and, and a whole host of others. But also extremely strong is language use. Youth suicide rates dropped to zero in the few First Nations communities in British Columbia where at least half the members of the community have a conversational knowledge of their native language. Our brains work better when we're not feeling lonely or socially isolated. And that's particularly true for prefrontal cortex and executive functions. We are fundamentally social. We need to belong. We need to fit in and be liked. Children who are lonely or ostracized have more difficulty learning. People who feel lonely or anticipate feeling alone in the future show worse executive functions than people who feel or anticipate feeling more socially supported. One study um, just asked people when they came in a whole series of survey questions and embedded in the survey were questions like, do you feel lonely or do you feel more socially supported? And they found that prefrontal cortex functioned more efficiently in people who reported that they felt socially supported and less efficiently in people who said they were lonely. Being socially excluded activates the same network in the brain as that for physical pain. The more social pain you feel, the more that network gets activated. Dan Siegel talks about interpersonal neurobiology because social relations shape and change our neurobiology. Africans believe in the relation between man and man. Westerners increasingly believe in the relationship between man and object. African philosophy bases all explanation on human relationships. Western philosophy bases them on science. Medicine is a good illustration of this difference. Africans believe, this is traditional Africans, this was written in the 1960s or 70s. Africans believe that to protect oneself and one's family from disease, one must live peacefully with one's neighbors, abstain from breaking taboos, and obey the laws of gods and men. Westerners believe that one only need take the right pill or have the right operation. But Africans define disease socially, not biologically. And now Western medicine is catching up with traditional Africans and we're realizing how bad for your health it is to be lonely or socially isolated or have social tensions in the community. If you feel as though you can't do it alone, that's because you were never meant to. Loneliness is not only bad for prefrontal cortex, executive functions, and mental health, it also takes a terrible toll on your body and your physical health. 
People who are lonely are more prone to infections and disease. Their health declines earlier in midlife. Their brain functioning declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than people who are more socially connected. Social isolation is on a par with high blood pressure, obesity, lack of exercise, or smoking as a risk factor for illness and early death. Good relationships keep us happier and healthy. Loneliness kills. What matters most in early childhood education? A man named Mel Hughes in the UK gathered data from all over the world on all of the early childhood programs he could find in every country in the world. And he found that the variable that mattered the most wasn't the number of kids, it wasn't the adult-child ratio, it wasn't qual the quality of the materials. All of those mattered, but they weren't the most important thing. The most important thing was the quality of the relationship between the adults and the children. If the children felt cared about, the results were positive. Relationship matters more than instructional styles, subject matter knowledge, adult-child ratio, having the best equipment, hands down. It's relationships, not programs that change children. A great program creates the environment for healthy relationships to form. Regardless of the program, a deeply caring relationship is essential for the best benefits. Early life stress causes accelerated telomere shortening. Telomeres are the protective tips at the end of your chromosome. You can think of them like the plastic tips on your shoelaces. They keep your shoelaces from fraying. Telomeres are the protective tips on chromosomes that keep your chromosomes from fraying. A cell dies when its telomere gets too short. Thus, telomeres determine the lifespan of cells and by extension, the lifespan of us. Children exposed to multiple adverse childhood experiences have shorter telomeres even by the age of five. And the difference is even larger by the age of 10. But maternal sensitivity and warmth can completely override the effect of early adversity on telomere length. So these are the kids who've been exposed to multiple adverse childhood experiences. Both bars have been exposed to the same number and the same type. But this dark bar were the lucky enough kids to have fantastic mothers, responsive, empathetic, caring moms. And those kids show no effect on their telomere length. The effect of adverse experience on telomere lengths is completely wiped out. That's the study. Another example that maternal sensitivity and warmth trumps early adversity, low socioeconomic status, hands down, is this much older study where they looked at behavior problems. So more behavior problems is bad, you want to have lower bars. And what they found is the poorer kids have most problems, but if they're lucky enough to have this great responsive mom, really empathetic, really listening, really caring, then they show fewer behavior problems than these much more advantaged kids. Thus, this is also probably true of dads. It's just that all the research so far has been done on moms. The single greatest mitigating factor to early adversity or trauma is terrific mothering, responsive parenting by a caring, warm adult. I don't think it has to come from the child's mother or even a relative. It can certainly come from the child's teacher. Responsive parenting, remember, listening and taking turns in conversation with your child also aids language development, literacy, and the maturation of brain regions critical for language. I told you about that earlier. 
You can't afford the latest gadgets or the best equipment. It doesn't matter. It's not the materials that matter. You are enough. Your caring is more important than your knowledge or skill or doing the textbook perfect thing. The most important element in terrific parenting is simply to love your child. Children who are truly loved know themselves to be valued, that knowledge is worth more than gold. When children know they're valuable, they feel valuable. This feeling of being valuable is the cornerstone of healthy development because when one considers oneself valuable, one will take care of oneself in all the ways that are necessary. We're not just intellects, emotions, and social, we also have bodies. You need your sleep. Lack of sleep will produce deficits in executive functions and make you look as if you have an executive function impairment like ADHD. When you don't, you're simply lacking sleep. The brain doesn't recognize the same sharp division between cognitive and motor function that we impose in our thinking. The same or substantially overlapping brain systems subserve both cognitive and motor function. For example, an area of the brain called pre-SMA is important for sequential tasks. And it doesn't matter whether they're sequential motor tasks or sequential cognitive tasks. Motor development and cognitive development appear to be fundamentally intertwined. Many concepts can and should be introduced visually and tactily by hands-on learning before they're introduced using language. It helps a great deal to give children experiences with concepts first before attaching a verbal label to them. And I love the Montessori materials for the, for the young children. You know, the pegboard where the pegs only differ by diameter, nobody's telling the three-year-old the word diameter. But the child, by working with that pegboard, is getting a visceral understanding of what diameter is. So later, when you introduce the word diameter, now the child understands what you're talking about. <laughs> but why use only sight, touch, and hearing for learning? We have bodies. Have children use their bodies to physically embody symbolized concepts. It's so powerful and so underutilized. So here's an example. This idea came to me while talking to a physicist friend of mine at MIT. He was struggling to explain something to me. A beautiful experiment that uses lasers to cool down matter. Now, he confused me from the very start because light doesn't cool things down. It makes it hotter. It's happening right now. The reason that you can see me standing here is because this room is filled with more than 100 quintillion photons, and they're moving randomly through the space near the speed of light. All of them are different colors. They're rippling with different frequencies. And they're bouncing off every surface, including me. And some of those are flying directly into your eyes. And that's why your brain is forming an image of me standing here. Now, a laser is different. It also uses photons, but they're all synchronized. And if you focus them into a beam, what you have is an incredibly useful tool. The control of a laser is so precise that you can perform surgery inside of an eye. You can use it to store massive amounts of data and you can use it for this beautiful experiment that my friend was struggling to explain. First, you trap atoms in a special bottle. It uses electromagnetic fields to isolate the atoms from the noise of the environment. And the atoms themselves are quite violent, but if you fire lasers that are precisely tuned to the right frequency, an atom will briefly absorb those photons and tend to slow down. Little by little, it gets colder. 
until eventually it approaches absolute zero. Now, if you use the right kind of atoms and you get them cold enough, something truly bizarre happens. It's no longer a solid, a liquid, or a gas. It enters a new state of matter called a superfluid. The atoms lose their individual identity, and the rules from the quantum world take over. And that's what gives superfluids such spooky properties. For example, if you shine light through a superfluid, it is able to slow photons down to 60 kilometers per hour. Another spooky property is that it flows with absolutely no viscosity or friction. So if you were to take the lid off that bottle, it won't stay inside. A thin film will creep up the inside wall, flow over the top, and right out the outside. Now, of course, the moment that it does hit the outside environment, and its temperature rises by even a fraction of a degree, it immediately turns back into normal matter. Superfluids are one of the most fragile things we've ever discovered. And this is the great pleasure of science, the defeat of our intuition through experimentation. Okay. So, guys, raise your hands. Does sound travel faster through a solid, a liquid, or a gas? Solid? Liquid? Gas. Okay. So, we're going to use our bodies to see what the right answer is. Can I get 12 volunteers up here in the center? I'm just going to ask you to, to do, to pass a word to one another, nothing difficult. If, if I could get 12 people up here, please. A teacher who told me about that demonstration, doing that in her class, said 20 years later she met a student who had been in her class and one of the things he said to her is, I know what, what medium sound travels fastest through, because he had seen it, he'd done it. Kids remember a new word or concept far better if they've acted it out than if they just hear or read the definition and repeat that out loud. If they've acted it out, they learn it at a much deeper level and remember it far longer. Montessori education is terrific at having children use their heads and their senses, I would like to see Montessori education have children use their whole bodies more. The different parts of the human being are fundamentally interrelated. Each part, cognitive, spiritual, social, emotional, and physical, is affected by and affects the others. The best and most efficient way to foster any one of those is probably to foster all of them. What activities directly train and challenge executive functions? and indirectly support them by also addressing our social, emotional, and physical needs? What activities touch the hearts and minds of young people, inspiring them, challenging them to reach for the stars, building their self-confidence and pride? Traditional activities that have been around for millennia, for tens of thousands of years across all cultures, storytelling, dance, art, music, and play have been part of the human condition. People in all cultures made music, sang, danced, did sports, and played games. There are good reasons why those activities lasted so long and arose everywhere. They, they address our social, emotional, and physical needs. Key is that the person really loved that activity and really want to do it. So he or she will spend a lot of time at it, pushing him or herself to improve. The activity can be almost anything. It can be caring for an animal 
It could be doing a service activity. It could be doing almost anything outdoors in nature. It could be doing a traditional activity from your culture. We have to care about children's emotional, social, and physical well-being if we want them to be able to problem solve, exercise self-control, or display any of the other executive functions. If a child is stressed, sad, lonely, or not physically fit, the very academic performance a school is trying to improve will take a hit. Nurturing the whole child may be critical for the outcomes we all want for our children. Thank you so much.